All right, guys. Well, uh, thanks for making us feel welcome in Madison. We're excited to be here. Uh, real quick, um, who? This is just something we were on the way here trying to figure out. Who's John Nolan? The Drive. Like who? I'm actually genuinely curious. Who? Who is that? Does anyone know? John Nolan Drive, right? The famous drive. Nolan. Okay. From Iowa. I don't know. Does anyone know who it is? Landscape architect? Great. Okay. That's, that has nothing to do with the sermon. I just genuinely really wanted to know. Um, so guys, yeah, my name is David. We, for the past season of our life, have been down in Iowa City being part of Salt Company, just trying to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a university town. And so we're here to do the very same thing. We love Jesus. We love trying to figure out how do we leverage our lives in every way we possibly can to just get more people into the kingdom of God. And so we're excited to be here. Um, my, my wife is over there, Steffi. You guys have to meet her. She's amazing. Honestly, uh, her being part of this church is going to be just as much of a gift, if anything, as, as us being here. And so um, hopefully you guys get to meet Steph. I want to tell you real quick about Silas, all right? This is just a quick intro story. He's a seven-month-old kid. He's super chunky and happy and amazing. And so you guys will love to get to know him. He's He's learning how to uh, like move around, okay? Like he can't walk yet, he can't crawl. I don't know if that's behind the curve or what, but he rolls a lot. That's like how he gets from place to place. And one of the things that I'm starting to do with Silas a lot is he, he has these like tr- thick tree trunk legs, which are like exactly the opposite of mine. And he, I like, so I hold him up and, uh, and I'm kind of like trying to get him strong. And one of the things that I'll do is I'll put my fingers out and I'll have him hold on to my fingers and like steady himself, right? This is classic dad move, right? And he'll steady himself. And part of the reason I'm doing this is I want his, his, what the? Last time I was here, the stand did the same thing. That's so strange. Hold on. Is this, maybe I'll need a different one. Yeah, I'm gonna get a different stand. All right. Okay, so as I was saying, I, one of the reasons I'm doing this with my son Silas is because I, uh, I, I rock climb. It's one of the things I love doing. And so one of my goals in life is to get his grip strength strong so that I can like go on climbing trips with my son later in life and call it father-son bonding. And so I'm like trying to prepare him for this and do this. And so sometimes I'll put him in these kind of situations that are like a little bit precarious, right? He'll be up on something high and I'll be like, okay, you're going to like kind of hold on to my fingers and see if you can balance here. And I'm, but I'm always holding on to him, you know? And so there's this question, okay? If you're watching this happen with Silas, it, you're, like, I'll be at the edge of the deck and I'll be kind of holding him out there, you know? Uh, and just like once, then I got in trouble for my wife. Okay, so, but there's this question, right? And the question is, is Silas safe in this moment? Like, is he safe? Is he secure or is he in danger? That's a, that's a question. And, and basically the, the answer to that question of, is he safe? It all depends on who's actually holding on to who, Right? Because if Silas, my little seven-month-old, if, if his safety, if the thing that's tethering him is his grip on my fingers, he's incredibly unsafe, right? He has no consistency, okay? He goes from like crazy grip strength, grab your eye, make you bleed, to like not holding on at all and flailing his body around, right? It's like totally unsafe. But if I'm the one holding on to him, he's not going anywhere, okay? Except for one time. One time he fell, but every other time... <laughs> Every single other time. Okay, it happened once. Steffi doesn't know about it. He's, he's fine. He bounced. It was great. But that's the, that's the answer to the question, right? Is Silas safe? Well, it depends who's holding on to who. And actually, Paul, at the very end of Romans 8, his answer to that question, are, are you safe? 
your future, your eternal hope, is that something that is safe and secure or is that something that is a little bit in danger? Is that something that's a little bit shaky? And Paul's gonna say the answer to that is the exact same answer to that question. Who's holding on to who? Is God the one who's holding on to you or are you the one holding on to God? Which one is it? And actually some of you in the audience right now, you're like, ha, trick question, nice try. It's both, right? I know how relationships work. God holds on to you and you hold on to him. Check, please, I'll come back next week, right? That's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say that. He says something different. And I actually think if we understand what Paul's saying at the end of Romans 8, if we get it, if we get it, not just like hear the theology, but we really understand and put that deep into our hearts, I genuinely think that Paul means for the end of Romans 8 to change every single moment of the rest of our lives, okay? And I wanna show you kind of what I mean Let's read the end of Romans 8 together. Starting in verse 31, he says this. What then shall we say to these things? We will cover what these things are, but if you've been with us at Doxa for the last few weeks, you know what these things are. And so he's saying, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's just pray real quick. Jesus, that is incredible. It's incredible. It makes me stand in awe and it makes me feel like, ah, oh, I just wanna close the Bible and say, that's all I have to say, think about those words. But Jesus, I wanna speak about this in a way that is helpful. I want your spirit to communicate to our hearts what we're supposed to feel when we read these words. So Jesus, talk to us. In your name, amen. Okay, three things, guys. Three super simple things I want us to see from the text. First thing, God is for us. What does it mean that God is for us and how do we know that? And the second thing is because God is for us, Paul is saying that there is nothing and no one in the world that can possibly condemn us in the end. And then the last thing is that because of those two things, there is nothing in the created universe that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so let's just start here, the very first one, that God is for us, right? He starts in verse 31 with this question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? And he says, if God is for us, if that's true, then who can be against us? And this, this statement, God is for us, is basically like the conclusion of everything he's just said. Right, all of Romans five to eight, you guys have been studying through, but actually all of Romans one through eight, and actually if you really wanna go big picture, it's essentially the conclusion of everything from Genesis one all the way to Romans eight, that God is for you. 
And he says, if that's true, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the very first thing he wants you to know is that God is for you. If the cross of Jesus Christ is saying anything, it is saying that God is more for you than you could possibly imagine. It says that God cares more deeply for you than you can kind of possibly know. But, but what the cross of Jesus is also saying is that it's saying that actually every single thing necessary for your salvation has already been accomplished. Everything necessary for you to be saved, everything necessary to bring you home in the end, that has actually already been accomplished by God for you. And so this is what I mean. It's like the point of the cross, right? It isn't actually just to give us access to this new path to be with God, but actually the point of cross is to completely buy and pay for heaven for people who could not take the very first step towards it. And when you first start reading the Bible, or maybe you've been coming to Doxa for a while, and you're, you're in this gospel doctrine series in Romans, right? You're, you're bumping up against this idea, and you're presented that this idea of salvation from Jesus is completely unique. There's nothing like it in the rest of the world. Every single other religion is the opposite of what Christianity says. And the reason we know that is because Paul is saying that it isn't our righteousness or our goodness that saves us. But it's Jesus' righteousness that we receive by grace through faith. And if you've been here for a while, you know that. We know that. But there's still this idea that even though Jesus has paid the price for salvation, it's still kind of up to us to take delivery of it, right? It's like this idea that if like your rich uncle or your weird uncle is walking through the halls of UW-Madison, Rob, it's like he... He buys you this Porsche, right? And like every kid has that dream. I don't know, I did. My uncle had old broken down snowmobiles, so I didn't get anything like that. But your uncle buys you a Porsche, right? And it's like at the dealership, bought, paid for, your name is on the title. And the only thing you have to do is go take delivery of it. You just gotta get to the dealership and then the keys are yours. This car is yours. All you have to do is learn a few bus routes and walk there and pick up this thing, right? And I think some of us think that like, that's what salvation is like. Jesus has bought and paid for it, and now we just need to take delivery of it. And that's really, really, really close to what Paul says salvation's like. But that's not what God has done for us. It's not what God has done for us. Because that would still require us to learn some bus routes. And it would still require us to use our sad little legs to get there. And simply put, God loves us too much And God has paid too great of a price for us to risk that we might not receive the thing that he has bought and paid for in the end. It's too risky for him to leave it up to you to take delivery of this thing. So Paul is saying that's not how salvation works. This isn't how Jesus saves people. Jesus doesn't save people by giving them an invitation and directions. He saves people by shedding his costly blood for them, blood that was so valuable and so worthy that it didn't just open a door for salvation for us, but it actually bought and paid for and guarantees every single step of our journey back to our Father in heaven. That doesn't mean we don't take those steps, but it means that every single one of those steps 
It is guaranteed. It is paid for. It is insured, not because of you taking them, but because Jesus' blood bought and paid for them. It is a totally different thing. And it isn't just an inconsequential piece of theology that people talk about kind of late at night in their dorm floor, kind of Bible nerds. Paul is like, no, 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 this is the crescendo. This is everything I'm trying to say that's the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what makes it good news. This is exactly what Paul has been saying. Why does everything work out for good for those who are in Christ Jesus? You guys remember that from last week? Everything works out for good for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, it says right after that, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So Paul's explaining this and he's saying, this is what the gospel is, that God predestines them. He, he chooses them from before the foundation of the world to be united and conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he's chosen, he calls them to faith. He calls them to himself and into relationship with him. And, and this is what it means. It means that we aren't joining ourselves to God. It means that God has joined himself to us. And those he calls into relationship, he justifies, right? This idea is like he is the judge and he slams down his gavel and he declares these people are righteous. And it says those whom he justified, he also glorified. Not that just one day in the future, we might have this glorification, but he uses it past tense. He's like, it's so sure, we are so confident of our future final standing in glory that it is though it has already happened, he has glorified us. Jesus doesn't say on the cross, it is started. He says it is finished because it is. It's finished. How much of all of this are we doing as Christians? Nothing. When were we mentioned there? We weren't. How much of it was God doing? Absolutely all of it. And that's the thing at the very end of Romans 8, Paul wants to put in our face. It isn't an inconsequential theological distinction. Please listen to me. It's not. It is so important for the way you view your standing before God. And what this means is that if you are in the room today and you have faith in Jesus Christ, it is not because you figured it out. It's not because you were a little bit smarter, a little more moral, a little closer to the kingdom of God than someone else in your life. No, it is because before the foundation of the world, God has been pursuing you. And so he says, what then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? Think of the power of that question. I love it. He says, if God, right, the one who holds the stars in the palm of his hand, the one from whom his breath speaks forth light and space and time, if he is for you, then what else matters? Who can be against us? And look what he says next. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you are sitting in the audience and you're trying to wonder and figure out how much is God for you, Paul's answer is, 
he didn't spare his son, but he gave him up for you. That's his answer to the question. And so as we're sitting here and everyone has these moments where we doubt the love of God for us, Paul is saying, if that's ever, ever a thing in your life, look at the cross. Because God, your father, has imprinted into the story of the world this picture that is supposed to communicate to us with as much clarity as possible the kind of love he has for us. And the picture that Paul paints is that there is nothing more valuable he could have given. There is no greater cost he could have paid for you. Look at Paul's logic. I love it. He says this. He says, if God didn't spare his son, but he gave him up for us all, then we can conclude with certainty that he will throw in at the same time all things. I love that. That is hilarious to me. Not some things, not many things, but his logical conclusion, he's just inferring from the gospel. He's saying, if God gave up his son, we can conclude with certainty that he is also going to give us every single possible good thing. That's what he says. And there's two ways in which this works. And I want to show both of them to you. The first way is this. The reason that Paul is so confident in this and the reason that us as Christians in this room, we can have the same kind of confidence is because the reason that we can expect to receive all things from God is because this is actually the very thing that Jesus was buying for you on the cross. He wasn't just buying your salvation. He was buying all of it, everything, all things for you. And so the idea is this, Paul's saying, well, the cost has already been paid, right? And if the cost of our salvation was so great and it was so weighty, how could it be possible that that kind of payment could be made and then somehow we wouldn't receive in the end the thing that Jesus' blood paid for? He says it's an impossibility. It would never happen, right? I don't know if you guys have been kind of tracking along with the whole like 50 years since we landed on the moon, or did we? You know, who knows? No, we did. We definitely did. Okay, so come on. We're in church. We don't deal with that nonsense. Okay, we landed on the moon. And anyway, think about that, right? So 50 years ago, like that, what Paul is saying is like, it's an impossibility. It'd be like if we finally get to the moon and Neil Armstrong is like on the ladder and he's got like one small step for mankind left. And then he just like, can't be bothered to step off the ladder, right? He's like, ah, it's, I don't know. I'm just done. I don't, I, it's, it's too much, right? He's like, no, like the sacrifice has been paid. Like we've paid the bills. We're there. You're on the moon. Just step off. He's like, you're so, you've gone so far that the idea that you wouldn't get this last little bit is an impossibility. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying Jesus' blood has already paid for everything. And Jesus' blood is so valuable and so costly that the idea that it would be wasted by not accomplishing the thing it paid for, it's an impossibility. It's an impossibility. And the second way it works is this. It's like Paul is saying that Jesus' life was so valuable. It is so valuable that in comparison with him, everything in all creation, every single other good gift from God, it doesn't even register on the scale. It doesn't even register on the scale. John Murray, I, th I think he wrote one of the greatest commentaries on Romans, and this is actually what he says. I think it's really helpful, but it's, it's kind of technical, so f follow me on this. He says this. The greatest gift of the Father, the most precious donation to us, was not things. It was not calling, or it wasn't justification or even glorification. It, it is not even the security with which the apostle concludes. These are 
favors dispensed in fulfillment of God's gracious design, but the unspeakable and incomparable gift is the giving up of his own son. So great is that gift. So marvelous are its implications, so far-reaching its consequences, that all graces of lesser proportion are certain of free bestowment. Another way to say it is like this. It's like he's saying that the entire created universe, like all of it, the, the stars, the goodness and beauty and light and life, the people, the stories, the emotions, the consciousness, every good blessing that God could give to someone. If the whole of the universe were compiled and folded in on itself, okay, one thing, it would not be worth comparing to the gift that God has already given us when he gave up his son for us. That's what he's saying. And so he's saying, if you've already received this, we should expect to receive all of the rest of it. And I want you to really think about that. Like really, like theological things like this, doctrines like this, sometimes we have them in kind of our headspace, but we connect them from our normal everyday life. But I want you to think about that because it should stop us in our tracks a little bit, right? Because I don't know, if you're like me, you walk through life and, and there's part of you that thinks, I know God has given me a tremendous amount of things. He's given me his son, he's given me salvation, I know that. But surely there are some good things my father has not given me, right? That's a pretty logical conclusion if you look at your life, right? There are some good things he's given to other people and not me. There's some kinds of gifts he's given to other people and not me. And we don't know why that is, but we can name those things, right? Well, I didn't get, you know, I put bids on like four houses in Madison. We didn't get any of them because they went so fast, right? Not a problem for us. We're in the NAM house, okay? But for some of you, you have to deal with that. I'm sorry, right? Or you might be saying like, man, I've been trying to find someone to spend the rest of my life with. I can't find that person. Or I've been trying to get career, like this kind of, this new thing in my career and you can't get it. You can name those things in your life. You say, there's some good gift God has not given me. Paul would say, no, no. There's actually not. There's not. This way of thinking about life is actually completely incompatible with the message of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, no, you don't understand. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a Christian, then that means God has given you his one and only son. And if God has given up his son for you, then you can be sure, you can be confident that whatever, whatever is happening in your life, it is all being done in order to give you everything, all things. The sacrifice of Jesus for you, it shouts against the idea that your Father in heaven is withholding anything from you. Jesus on the cross for you means that there is no better story than the one that God is writing for your life. There is no better path that God could have you on that would lead you to a better final end. There is no other version of reality where you are more blessed than the reality you currently sit in where God gave up his one and only son for you. This is the first thing he wants you to know, is that when you see the Son of God on the cross in your place, what it is supposed to do is communicate to us in the deepest possible way that somehow, despite who you are and what you've done, despite every detail of your story, God is for you. And he is for you more than you could possibly know.
And he goes, know that, feel that. And he says, because of this, look what he says next. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. He's saying, because God is for us, we're now faced with this other reality that there is no one and no thing that can condemn us. There's this moment in John 8 that I think captures this so perfectly. And it's this, it's this story that I kind of want to just let us in, enter into for a second. And in John 8, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's kind of been at the temple and he's, he's teaching, right? He's doing his thing. He's got these crowds gathered and they're around Jesus. They're trying to figure out, man, what's this guy about? And, and he's teaching the people. And all of a sudden, kind of from the corner of the frame, you can kind of start to hear this rabble, right? There's this loud kind of cacophony of noise moving through the streets. And, and you kind of can hear this coming. And, you know, all of a sudden, kind of the voice of Jesus and the conversations that are happening, those start to get drowned out by this commotion as you're looking through the crowd and you can't quite see what's going on. But you can start to see that there is a group of people and they're moving quickly towards you. They're making all kinds of noise and they're yelling. And you see that they are holding on to this person. They've, they've grabbed this person. They're dragging this person through the streets. And you see that it's a, it's a woman. And, and she's, she's kind of poorly dressed. She's kind of trying to cover herself up as they drag her into this crowd of people. And it is silent. And they throw this woman down at the feet of Jesus. And they say, Jesus... We just caught this woman in adultery, red-handed, having sex with someone who wasn't her husband, destroying families in our community. And the law tells us that the right punishment for this woman is to be stoned. The law tells us we are supposed to kill this woman. And so they pick up stones, the whole group, and they say, Jesus, this is what the law says we're supposed to do. What do you say we should do? And the people who have brought this woman are the scribes and Pharisees, right? The religious leaders. He just can't stand these guys. And so Jesus is, totally ignores them. <laughs> I love it. He totally ignores them. And it, the, the text says that he's like drawing in the dirt with his finger, which is so random. And people are always trying to figure out like, what is Jesus drawing? Like, is he, people think he's like writing down their sins or like drawing cool tattoo ideas or playing like tic-tac-toe with the Holy Spirit. I don't know, but like he's, he's doing something in the sand. We don't know. It's just part of the story, right? And he's ignoring them. And they're like, Jesus, what should we do? This, the law says this should happen. We should stone her. What do you say? And eventually Jesus says, okay, well, how about the, very, the first person that has no sin, you throw the first stone. And kind of slowly over some minutes, right, the, the oldest people, they drop their rock and they go home. And eventually the middle-aged people with a little less wisdom, then they drop their rock and they go home. And eventually the young, dumb kids drop their rock and go home. And eventually there's only two people there, just Jesus and this woman. And, and Jesus stands up and he walks over to her. She's, you know, she's lying in a in a heap, she's, she's probably cried every tear she can cry. And Jesus just looks at her and, and he says, hey, where, who, who's here that has condemned you? And she says, well, no one's, no one. They've all gone. And then Jesus says, yeah, I, I don't condemn you either. 
So go and sin no more. And it's this really powerful story, right? But there's a, there's a question in it. There's, there's a, it's a weird story. Because the people who brought this woman to Jesus, they weren't wrong. This, this, it wasn't an innocent woman. And now certainly this woman has probably had horrible things happen into her life to get her into the situation, but she has blood on her hand. She's responsible. Who knows the kind of damage that has happened by the choices that she has made. And Jesus is supposed to be the good king who brings justice into a world of brokenness. And so the question is, why does Jesus say There is no condemnation. You're free to go. Go and sin no more. Why doesn't Jesus do the just right thing and take the stone and end the problem? He doesn't. And the reason Jesus doesn't isn't just because he forgives sin. It's because in a very few short weeks, we're kind of moving quickly in the, in the Gospel of John. Just a few chapters later, Jesus is going to walk up a very similar road to a cross. And Jesus would take the place of that woman. The, the one person that had no sin, the one person that could have thrown the first stone, instead of doing that, he chose to be crushed himself. He walked up the hill to Golgotha as a murderer, as a whore, as a homewrecker, as someone who has brought devastation into the world. And he was crushed on this woman's behalf. And it is because of that that Jesus can look at her and say, I don't condemn you. Right, what's so amazing about that story is there's this massive crowd of people, right? And when we look at our lives, we think there's so many different people in our lives. There's so many different voices that can bring some kind of condemnation against us. But at the end of that story, there's only two people, mano y mano, Jesus and the woman. And at the end of your story, those are the only two people as well, you and King Jesus. He is the only one who can drop the stone. He is the only one that can condemn you. And what is so amazing is what Paul is saying, This is saying, that person, the one who can condemn you right now, today, this very moment in time, he is standing in heaven with holes in his hands and his face disfigured from the scars of his suffering. And he is interceding on your behalf before the throne of God. The only person in the universe that has the power to condemn you, he is the very one pleading your case before the judge. And he never abandons his post. He never steps down. He will be there forever on your behalf, shouting out, They are innocent. They are righteous because I took their punishment. I was condemned. I was crushed. Look at my scars. They tell the story that these people are worthy. It's stunning. I mean, do you hear how powerful that question Paul is asking is? He's saying, if God is for us, if that one is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? So God's for us. No one can condemn us. And the third thing, I just want to get this quick. Nothing can keep us from his love. 
He, he's building up. I love this. I mean, you can like feel Paul. I don't even know. I, I, I still got plenty of time. But anyway, Paul's like, it feels like as he's writing this, like he's getting so amped up. Like, do you, like as you read Romans 8, doesn't it feel like Paul just like stood up from his desk and is like, oh boy. Like, I mean, he is so pumped up about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he just, it builds and he just starts to like say these crazy things. He's like, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's like he's putting that out into the universe. Like I dare anyone or anything to try to defeat what I'm saying. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And then he quotes from the psalmist, one of the darkest parts of kind of the history of God's people is they're being destroyed. And he quotes that and it says, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, right? It's like the worst possible case. He says, no, in all of these things, in all of them, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love that last line. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. What Paul is saying is that this world can do everything in its power to destroy you. And there are going to be days where it will try. You will have children who will not make it. You will have friends who go through horrible difficulties. And at the exact same time, Paul is saying, the world can take so much from you, but it can't touch you. Even if you found yourself in the worst place possible in this world, your life is unfolding in the kind of way as though you are like a sheep to be slaughtered. And some of you in the room, you feel this way. You feel like your life is filled with a kind of pain that you, you can't even explain to the people who are closest to you in your life. And Paul is saying that the cross of Jesus, it overwhelms that story and it replaces it with a completely different one. And Paul isn't saying this from some place of privilege, right? He's not saying this as someone who's never experienced hard things in his life. No, if you know Paul's story, you know it was brutal. He always stacked up at the bottom of the heap. And despite this, Paul says that because of the cross, those things don't affect his story. They don't carry weight. They don't have any significance compared to the story that God has stamped across his life. Because at the end of my story, Paul is saying, no matter what has happened in my life, no matter what difficult, what hardships, no matter what slaughtering has happened to me, that is just the prologue. And that is just the title page. But there is a chapter starting where I will be ushered into the kingdom of God, where I will stare into the face of my creator and where I will receive all things from the one who created all things. Where all that is bad will become good and everything that is good will actually stay that way forever. That is the end of the story for people who have been connected to Jesus Christ, his crucified son. And the world can't touch that. It can take everything from you, but it can't touch you. And Paul, he, he switches at the very end and, and he, he just kind of, he stops asking questions and he just gets really personal. And, and Paul just starts to talk like from his heart. He isn't just kind of casting out these questions in the universe. He's, he's getting super personal. He just says, I'm... I'm sure, like in the deepest parts 
of my being, I am confident that neither death nor life, nor, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And in case we're like, well, did you miss anything? He goes, anything in creation. I am confident that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Paul uses this language. He uses this kind of far-reaching, penetrating language to try to explain to us and is powerful the way possible that you are more safe in the arms of God than you could possibly know. You're safe. Completely safe in the arms of God. And you ask these questions, right? I'm just like, let's just think about him again because he's like throws them out. It's like, if God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that question. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who is there to condemn us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These questions from Paul, he throws them out into the farthest reaches of the universe. Is there any response to these things? And the answer is silence. There's nothing and no one in time or space or heaven or hell that can separate us from the love of God. That is amazing. But if you're like me, one of the things that happens when you get to the end of this is you go, okay, I understand that no one else can separate me from the love of God. I understand that that, that thing from this person can't separate from the love of God. No other person can, but what about me? Can I separate myself from the love of God? What about my sin? I, I get that no one else can do this, but, but I know myself. And I, I'm loving Jesus this week, but I, what about next week if I'm not, right? Or what if I end up falling back into my old sin? Because there's some stories in this room of some sin that is still knocking at your door, isn't it? And you think about that and you go, what if I end up crawling back into a hole so deep that I just can't get out of it? I have those fears. And I know that many of you in the room do as well. So the world can't condemn me, but can I end up condemning myself? No. No. That's what's crazy about what Paul is saying. He's saying that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God, and that includes you, because you're created. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Don't you get it? That's what's so unbelievably staggering about the cross. That's why Paul is speechless. (laughs) Who are we to bring any accusation against God's elect? That isn't a question for other people, it's a question for us. For those who have been united to God, we cannot even condemn ourselves. How dare we try to condemn one for who the precious blood of Jesus has bought and paid for, even if it is ourselves. When we start to doubt our salvation, when we start to let our failures and our individual inadequacies determine whether we believe, whether we will make it to the end or not, or determine our standing before God, it is not because we have a very low view of ourselves. It is because we have a very low view of our Savior. 
And we do not trust that he can keep forever the things he has already bought and paid for. This is not about giving you some inflated self-worth that you will make it to the end, Christian. No, this is about giving you an inflated and full view of God and his power and his strength to save fully that which he bled and died for. Paul will not allow us to have a small view of God. He will not allow us to have a small view of God's suffering. He won't have it. And so he says, what then shall we say to these things? This is the point. There's nothing you can say to this. There's no response you can possibly have because you had nothing to do with it. God did everything. The cross of Jesus spans from beginning to the end over the entire history of your life. The reason that Paul can look out into the furthest reaches of time and space and heaven and conclude with 100% confidence that nothing will separate you from the love of God is because you aren't holding on to God. He's holding on to you. He's holding on to you. That is why you are safe. Your love isn't what joins you to God, but it is his love for you. Your grip isn't what keeps you tethered to God in the midst of the storm, but you stay tethered to him because he never lets go of those he loves. And this changes everything because our love, it's fickle, it's fading. It's on one moment and off the next, but God's love for you, it is forever and it is strong and it is steadfast. And if God can hold the universe in the palm of his hands, then you better believe he's strong enough to hold on to you no matter where you go and how far you run. We are prone to wander and Jesus knows that. That's why his hands are so strong. He's strong enough to hold on to you. This question we've been Paul's been asking the whole time, right? He says, what then shall we say to these things? I, I wanna just flip that around. And I just, not what then shall we say to these things, but I just, I wanna make it really personal for you. What do you say to these things? What, like, as you hear the end of Romans, as we wrap up this series, what do you say to these things? How do you respond to a God who has done this for us. You know, sometimes, sometimes you get a, a, a gift and, and the gift is like so extravagant. It, it's so over the top. Like it's so costly that like there, there's nothing you can say in response, right? It's like the moment you're given this, it's like it's so, it, it, there's so much gravity to that moment that like for you to say anything it would be like to sully the moment. It's like your every word you could say is pathetic in response to what you're being given. And I, and I feel like this is one of those moments where it's like, you, you can't respond. You can't speak back something that would be appropriate. What does it look like to, to respond to what God has done? I think it's like that moment you have that gift where you just, like you open your mouth, but you can't say anything that doesn't sully the moment. So you just, you just receive it. Okay, God, you've done this for me. I, 
okay, I receive that. My question for you is like, have you done that? Not tried to like speak something back to God that would like thank him in the right way, but just have you received just, you did that for me, okay. I received that. What do you say to these things? What does it look like for you not to just hear what God has done, but what does it look like for you to, to actually receive this gift? Because when you, when you have that moment with God, it changes everything about your life. It changes everything about the way you view yourself, the way you view the world, your money, your possessions, your relationships. It changes everything when you get what he's saying at the end of Romans 8 here. And so I just want to pray for us just as people who are being presented with what God has done, that we'd be people that would receive it and be changed by it. Jesus, I, I love you. And I feel like I just, every time I come face to face with what you've done, and I just... I am reminded of, it's amazing. And Jesus, I, I don't have words. So Jesus, we just receive, we receive it. Jesus, for the people in the room who have been looking at you from a distance um, and have been kind of hearing these gospel doctrines, but maybe they've never, they've not become their gospel doctrines. Jesus, would you meet them here today? And even as we worship together and kind of in whatever kind of small, frail way we can try to respond to what you've done through song and word, Jesus, we, we want to be people that get this a little deeper into our hearts. And so 